following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, so we've been in Hebrews for a while. The more I'm preparing sermons for Hebrews, the more I'm realizing we're going to be in Hebrews longer than I thought, because I'll get this chunk of scripture and I'll be like, oh, I can cover this on a Sunday. And by about Tuesday, I'm like, yeah, I can't cover this on a Sunday. There's just too much here. So today was supposed to be Hebrews 10, 26 to 39. We're not going to make it to 39. We're going to get about halfway through. And what's happening in this section? We've been spending a lot of time the last couple of weeks talking about the importance of Jesus' sacrifice for us. How you no longer have to worry about old covenant sacrifice to take care of sins. Jesus has done it for us. Well, now in Hebrews 10, the second half of the chapter, you're getting two things. You're getting a warning and you're getting an encouragement. And because I just can't do justice to both parts of this this morning, uh, you're just going to get the warning this morning. So I want you to know this is building toward an encouragement next week. But we're going to take time today to settle into one of the warnings in Hebrews. So this is the context of where this is heading. Next week, we'll read the following verse. Remember all these things, and do not abandon your confidence, which will lead to rich rewards. Now, this imagery about not abandoning your confidence, the author could have written, don't abandon your shield. This was a common term that was used. If any of you are familiar with Greek history or perhaps a movie called The 300, there was this admonition that women would give to their husbands and to their sons when they went into the battle. They would hand them their shield, and they'd say, come back with your shield or on it. In other words, you do not run from the battle. You fight bravely. And if you die in battle, bringing back on your shield is a sign of honor. Or you carry your shield back. But the one thing you don't do is throw your shield down and run away from the challenge that's in front of you. That's the language the author of Hebrews is borrowing from when he says, uh, don't abandon your confidence in Christ. That's where we're going next week. But he also says, remember all these things. And that's referring back to what came before this. And that's going to include what we're talking about this morning and what we'll talk about next week. I have a lot of footnotes in my notes this week. I'm not going to be covering them as I speak. I encourage you to pick up notes or come to Message Plus afterwards and we'll talk more about it. All right, we're going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. Now, if we willfully and deliberately persist in sin, after receiving knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice left for those sins because there is not another provision. There's only the fearful prospect of judgment and a fierce fire that will consume God's adversaries. Remember that those who depart from the law of Moses are put to death without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much more severe the punishment will be for those who have turned their backs on the Son of God, trampled on the blood of the covenant by which he made them holy, and outraged the spirit of grace with their contempt. For we know the God who said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. That God also said, the eternal one will judge his people. It's truly a frightening thing to be on the wrong side of the living God. So as I read that, one of the big questions that comes to my mind is, what does it mean that there is no sacrifice left for sin for those who persist in sin after receiving the truth? I'm going to give you three quotes as I was reading commentary this week just to give you an idea of how Christians throughout the history of the church have understood this section. This must refer to a deliberate act 
where a man means to abandon his religion and to turn away from God, says Barnes in his notes on the Bible. Adam Clark says, a man may be overtaken in a fault, or he may deliberately go into sin, and yet neither renounce the gospel nor deny the Lord has bought him. His case is dreary and dangerous, but it's not hopeless. No case is hopeless but that of the deliberate apostate who rejects the whole gospel system. To him there remains no more sacrifice for sin, for there was but one, Jesus, and this he has utterly rejected. So these first two quotes, they're suggesting this has to do with just abandoning God altogether. I'm not interested in what Jesus has to offer for me. The third quote, slightly different. The word willfully stands in contrast with sins of weakness or ignorance and even error as referred to in Hebrews 5. He's alluding not only to those sins which the Jews described as being committed presumptuously or with an uplifted hand, but to the deliberate continuity of such sins as a self-chosen law of life. As for instance, when a man has closed against himself the door of repentance and said, evil, be thou my good. So in other words, they're suggesting this has something to do, it's a challenge to those who claim to follow Christ. That you say, you know what, uh, th- this isn't just a sin that I-, I fell in a moment of weakness. This is one where I've deliberately decided, you know what, I don't care. I know what God says. I'm doing it anyway, and it becomes a continual part of your life, as he says, the deliberate continuity of such sins as a self-chosen law of life. So once again, does this mean someone who is saved can fall away? Can you lose your salvation? So it's probably not a surprise. There's differences of agreement in the Christian camp, right? Calvinists say you can't because you have eternal security. Once you were saved, you are always saved. Arminians say you can, that even once you are saved, God allows you the freedom to reject him once again if you so choose to do that. We're not going to hash out those disagreements in this service. Both camps would agree on the following statement. The deliberate continuity and embrace of sin as a self-chosen law of life. The deliberate claiming of evil over good as we proudly shake our fists and turn our backs. This will put us on the wrong side of God. And that's a fearful thing. So the Calvinist will say someone who does this was never truly saved. The Arminian will say uh, they may have been saved, but it's a sign that they've walked away. But they both agree these are people who are walking under the wrath of God. Not under the grace of God. And my suspicion is that the writer of Hebrews wanted us to see that there's a correlation between rejecting God and just willfully committing yourself to lifestyles of ongoing sin in a defiant sense. Not once again a sense in which we as people on this side of heaven were not perfect people. This is a, a commitment and a choice that I just don't care what God has to say about these things. And so once again, I think the writer wants us to see there's a correlation here. If you turn your back on God, this is what your life will look like. Or if your life looks like this, it's probably a good sign that you actually have turned your back on God. Now sin, as we talk about it and as it's used in the Bible, there's one word that's used more than any other. And it has the idea of missing the mark. This is an archery analogy. So I want to give a little background about what we're shooting for so we understand what it looks like when we're missing it and what it looks like when we commit ourselves to missing it. So good is this idea that there's this purpose and this design for the world that God has. 
He's made it a particular way. The world flourishes if we commit ourselves to living this way. People flourish. Nature flourishes. Church community flourishes. Our abilities to evangelize. All these things. God has a plan. And it's for our good and it's for his glory. So we see it in the Bible. Uh, Throughout church history, you hear people talk about things like the glory of God is when we are fully alive. This is the idea of living righteous lives. We think of this even in terms of people bear God's image. Uh, We are ambassadors of Christ. Everyone bears God's image. But Christians in particular are ambassadors for Christ. And this idea when we hit the mark is that our image bearing is maximized. We're flourishing. When, when people see us, they see something about the image of God in us. But then as Christians, we become these ambassadors of God that present this really compelling presentation. As Christ is in us, as the Holy Spirit is in us, and as people see us, they see Christ in us. So I would define good this way. It's the fulfillment and celebration of God's purposeful and good design for the world. When we pray things like, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying for this to become the reality, that every good and perfect gift God has given us and has given the world comes true, and that our lives in a committed focus on following the righteous path of God help to bring these things about. So then when we sin, we miss this mark, and evil enters the world. So Augustine said evil is the privation of good. It simply means there's good the way God intended it. Anytime we do not experience that good in its fullness, that is when evil is beginning to creep into the world. Ravi Zacharias says it's the deprivation of purpose. It's any distortion or rejection of God's design. It's any time we don't hit the bullseye and we're even out just a little bit, we become contributors to the evil that's in the world. But this image gets worse. The language describing missing the mark seems to imply that you actually hit somebody else when you miss the mark. So it's not just that you missed it, and you know what? This is just between me and God. This is My sin is totally personal. My sin occurred in a bubble. There's no ripple effect. The implication of this word and this language seems to be not only did you miss, but you hit somebody when you missed. That our sin has a ripple effect. It has an impact on those around us. And I think what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is not when we accidentally miss. I mean, we're aiming, and we just don't have perfect aim, and we miss, and we might hit someone else and hurt them. All right, we go to them and repent. This whole process of repentance and forgiveness is crucial to life together in Christ. But the writer of Hebrews is talking about something else now, about someone who not only misses, but they're not even trying to hit anymore. They're like tracking people and trying to nail them. And they either don't care or maybe they actually take some pleasure in this, but there's now bodies everywhere. This is the implication of this language that when we sin, we leave this trail of wounded and broken people around us. I was trying to think of a of an image to give a little bit of a comparison. So when some of my boys were younger, I won't name any names, uh, they would pick the cat up by the tail. Now they didn't know any better. Uh, they're just petting the cat like, hey, I'd like to carry the cat with me. Where's the hand- handy carrying part? The tail, clearly. I just pick them up and start walking. All right, so you stop them. 
And they learn, okay, that's fine. You missed the mark there on how to carry a cat, but we got to figure it out. It's a different thing if they know and they look at you and they're like, yeah, I'm carrying the cat by the tail. Pick that cat up and start walking. It's on now, right? Now I know that you knew better and you know the cat didn't like it, but you just went, you know what? Doesn't matter. I feel like carrying the cat by the tail. Off we go. This is kind of the idea. It's not an accident. It's something deliberate. It's something planned. Probably even this idea that we kind of look at God and go, you know what? I don't care. I just don't care. And then we do it over and over again. And the warning that comes with this is is probably one of the most blunt and one of the most daunting in Scripture. It reminds us that wrath is part of God's nature. God is a just God. God has a righteous anger or a righteous wrath, and it's targeted at sin. Because sin is ruining his good creation. And it's harming his image bearers, and it's harming his children. And God is a God of justice, and God is a God of wrath. And someone has to answer for the desecration of his good creation. And it's either going to be us, or it's going to be someone who stands in for us. And we've been talking for weeks now in Hebrews that the beauty of what Jesus offers us is that he stands in for us. And the wrath of God that we deserved is poured out on Jesus. So the Bible's clear that God's holiness is offended by the presence of sin. But I think God's wrath has a lot to do with his anger about how his children and his image bearers are impacted by sin. And for that reason, God's righteous anger is the right response to the destruction of goodness. If God were not angry that his children were being hurt, we'd have a hard time thinking of that as a just God. If someone comes up and punches vents, if I don't get angry, do you think that makes me a good parent? I don't think so. I think I there's a righteous kind of anger, at least I hope it would be righteous. It might not be in the moment, but we'd work on getting there. Or I'd go, you do not hurt my child. You do not hurt my child. And if I would look at it and just give a shrug and go, hey, whatever, uh, not only would my son be devastated because of the message it was sent to him about how I love him, but people around would go, okay, that's weird. Thought you loved him. All right, so a God of love is a God of wrath. When he sees his good world hurt and he sees his image bearer and his children hurt, he cannot abide it. Someone must answer for this, and we see this in Christ. I I mentioned this the other week, that in Christ we see how the lawgiver himself absorbed the punishment for us lawbreakers. It's an incredible thing. And as we get into next week as well, we're just going to talk more about this incredible nature of grace that here we are spreading destruction in God's good world, and Jesus steps in and he says, I will take that eternal punishment for you. There might be, uh, well, the principle of sowing and reaping is real in this world. We have to deal with the ripple effect of our sin as it hurts other people and the cost of that in a very practical sense. But in the eternal sense, Jesus steps in and he says, I've got this. I offer this to you. I'll pay the penalty. But this part of Hebrews that we're in this morning makes clear. It's the warning before the encouragement. We can reject this offer, 
or we can move out from under this offer, however you want to view it, the reality is there is a danger that we will choose to walk under the wrath of God rather than under the grace of God. So there's times in my house where I say, boys, I love you. Um, I just love what's happening in your life. Uh, I am well pleased, well done. And there's other times that I say to my boys, yeah, not in this house. So this is this part of Hebrews. This is God going, not in my house. It's a warning. It's a reminder of his wrath. So what I want to do this morning is I really want to challenge us. And I'll tell you, before we get to the specific challenge, this is a morning where I'm going to call you to repentance. It's not a morning where I want to shame you. The Bible does not bring shame. Jesus does not bring shame. But guilt, that can be a thing. Because godly sorrow brings repentance. That's the idea. If the Holy Spirit speaks to you about something in your life, that that's God letting you know there's something that you need to deal with in your life. So this morning, uh, it's going to be a call to repentance. Uh, I ha- as your pastor, I have to challenge you. Or I have to remind you about the reality of God's wrath because I don't want you under it. I want you under the grace of God. Now, there's two ways I can think of this morning that this can go wrong. There's probably more. I only had time to come up with two. One is that I overstate the wrath of God and I diminish the grace of God. In other words, I say so much about how God is angry at sin that we forget that God is a God who gives us grace that is remarkable. And so in that sense, I diminish grace. But the other way this can go wrong is that I understate how God views sin and also diminish grace. Here's my analogy for that. Um, I've never seen an advertisement on TV for a cleaning product that gets rid of a small layer of dust. I can do that with my breath or with the cat. I've never seen an advertisement for that because nobody cares. It's a small layer of dust. It's gone. But if you've ever had a, a volcano of a casserole in your oven and it baked in there for a couple hours, or maybe let's just say a toy soldier was in there and you didn't know it, you want an advertisement for something that tells you, I can clean this up. Like, this is a legit mess. I'll get this. So the compelling nature of this cleaning product is probably in correlation with the disaster that you have to clean up. Okay, if we think grace is cleaning up a thin layer of dust, we're never going to appreciate grace. We're never going to appreciate what God offered to us. I think we have to see the toy soldiers we melted in our oven and the casserole that blew up and the, the, the grease fire that is our sin so that we understand when we say grace covers that, it puts us on our knees in a response of worship to Christ for what he has done. So my goal this morning is I, I don't want to overstate the wrath of God to sin and I don't want to understate the wrath of God to sin against sin. Because I think both of those diminish grace. So I'm shooting for the sweet spot here. All right, so here's my question this morning. Are there places in our lives where we have not only stopped pursuing God's good design, but we've started to settle into a deliberate, continual pattern of missing the mark? I'm not going to let it be that vague. I'm going to address four things. I could address a lot more than four things. 
But I'm hoping by addressing four things, all of us uh, feel like we're under the microscope at at least some point. Because I want us to go through this together. All right, first of all, our speech. So the biblical mark for us is wholesome language, full of grace and truth, that builds the world and the kingdom of God. So once again, if we hit this mark, and, and our speech is what the Bible calls us to say, and the, the words and the attitude and the presence of Christ is just real in how we talk to others, we flourish, the people around us flourish, it's a beautiful thing. When we miss the mark, don't forget, when we miss the mark, we're hitting people. And we could do it accidentally. Repentance, forgiveness, repentance, forgiveness. That's just life. We've got to get used to that. We learn from it, right? We grow. God's at work in us. But sometimes I think it's easy for us to kind of shrug our shoulders maybe and go, you know what? This is who I am. I'm, I'm the kind of person who, man, when I talk to people, they get hurt because I'm just direct and blunt. That's on them. Or, or we can be the kind of, we gossip. I just want to share a prayer request. And we gossip. We, our sarcasm is hurtful. It's not just funny, it's hurtful. We make passive-aggressive comments to people. It's harsh criticism and sharp anger and insults and just plain meanness. And once again, I'm not talking about the mistakes we make. We're tired. We're hangry. We have all these moments in our lives where our guard is down and in our frailty and weakness, we hurt others. We see it. We, we apologize. We learn from it. I'm talking about when we begin to settle and say, I just don't care. I know that when I do this, someone is hurt. It might even be, I know that when I do this, I know who I'm hurting. I know that when I make a criticism, that hurts my spouse, and I don't care because I'm angry. I know that when I make these passive-aggressive comments to manipulate people, I, I know that that dishonors them and discourages them and, and wrecks their self-esteem and self-confidence, and I just don't care. It's too hard to have a direct conversation. I'm going to settle for this. It's those sarcastic jokes, and we can see it in people's eyes that we know. We know it's too much. And we shrug and walk away and do it again because we just don't care. I think this is what Hebrews is warning us about. Do we see it and not care enough to do something about it? If we do, we're basically saying, God, I know what you've called me to, and I know what hitting the mark looks like, and I know I'm not doing it, and I don't care. Or, even worse, I kind of like it. I felt kind of good. These people online try to embarrass me and call me names. I can give it back. I can humiliate them online. Man, I felt good. Let's do this again. Yeah, my Bible says not to do that. You know what? They didn't have Facebook during Bible times. They didn't know how hard social media is. It gets under my skin. I just don't care. Just don't care. And the writer of Hebrews is warning us. You can't settle for that. 
That's the kind of thing the wrath of God falls on. What about our money? So I think the biblical mark is faithful, generous, responsible stewardship, in which we take care of what God has given us and take care of those around us. Plenty of parables in the Bible about this, plenty of talk in the Bible that we're stewards of money. We as Christians don't have the luxury of thinking of money as ours. The money we have is God's that he has entrusted to us for our good and for his glory. We see in the early church in Acts, we talked about this a month or two ago, the radical nature in which they did not think of their stuff as their own. I mean, they were private owners of their things, but when need arose, they unloaded stuff. They just helped people because they recognized they were stewards of money God had given them. I think it's what we're shooting for. And my question is, are we settling for greed and are we settling for selfishness? Has our money become our precious for you Lord of the Rings fans? You, you look at your checkbook, you look what's growing in the bank account, you look at your retirement fund, and if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, this will make no sense, but Gollum-like, we just hold it in front of it, and we caress it, and we're enamored by it, and it consumes us, and it changes us, and this is the thing that begins to control us. So here's one of my questions. How much of your money do you give away? How generous are you? And I'm not thinking of percent now. We've talked before in this church that I don't think a 10% tithe is a New Testament command. I think the New Testament command is harder. Give generously and joyfully. The New Testament doesn't put a marker on it, so you can't just give a certain percentage and walk away and go, apparently I'm holy when it comes to my money. Oh no, it's much harder than that. What does it look like to live a radically generous life? And I'm not talking about walking out into the street, going into the Cherry Festival Parade, just throwing money up in the air like, hey, I'm giving money away. I think as stewards, we have a responsibility to figure out where that goes. That's a call to us. But can I just give you some statistics about the American church right now? I don't know who ties what in this congregation, all right? That is not something I am privy to, and I don't want to be privy to it. Uh, If you feel like I'm stepping on your toes this morning, I'm not singling you out. That will be God. All right, on average, Christians give 2.5% of their income to the church. During the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. Today in the United States, American Christians give almost a full percent less, almost a third less in tie to the church than Christians did during the Great Depression. Only 10 to 25% of the average congregation gives it all. Religious giving is down 50% since 1990. And in one of the most daunting statistics, people with salaries of less than $20,000 are eight times more likely to give than those who make over $75,000. Friends, we have a mammon problem in the church. And if this doesn't apply to you, don't take false guilt upon yourself. But if this applies to you, Let the Holy Spirit speak to you about this. I'm not doing this to drum up money for our church. I won't complain if we do. I'm I'm talking about God's plan for how we break the hold of money in our lives. Do, Do you know the money, after talking about God, the Bible talks about money more than anything else, far and away. There's at least 2,000 references 
in the Bible. Verses about 500 references to prayer and faith and about 70 references to sex. And what do we talk about most in the church? Not money. And yet that is the Bible's favorite topic after God. And I think it's because God recognizes, because he designed us, money is powerful. We will worship God or we will worship mammon. And I am more and more convinced that our generosity says something about who we worship. So, we know as Christians what God has called us to do with our money. My question this morning is, do we care? Do we care? Do we shrug our shoulders and go, you know what? I know we're supposed to be radically generous, but I, um, I don't care. I want that nicer car. I want that nicer house. I want that nicer vacation. I want to make sure when I retire, I have no want or need. And I know God tells me that as I steward my money, I have to be looking around especially in the family of God and seeing if there's people in need and I need to be generous and my money needs to spread the gospel and my money needs to take care of God's people. Oh man, and I don't care. God's plan for my money is not as important as my plan for my money. Friends, that that is wrath of God territory. I tell you this because I love you. That's wrath of God territory. That is walking deliberately out of God's design. And maybe that's not hurting someone, so to speak, but it's not healing someone. Our money is is meant to be used for God's glory and the spread of his kingdom. And I wonder sometimes when we get nervous about money, Do we think God's grace is sufficient even if our wealth is not? Do we think that God will not provide for us at the end of the day? Do we think that? And then do we hold that money close and go, you know what? I know that this is money I don't need to have. And I know that there are people who need it, really need it. I know this could go toward evangelism. I know this could do kingdom work. I know this could do all these things. But I have bucket list things in my life that I need money to accomplish. And therefore, this money goes in that bucket, not the kingdom bucket. Is it hot in here? How about sex and purity? We're gonna, we're just gonna hit all the ones today. Sex and purity. Even though it's not mentioned nearly as many times as money, there's a unique thing about sex in the Christian understanding of it, and that is, it is the only act that is inherently covenantal. In other words, sexual activity is meant to initiate covenant with a spouse, and then be a reminder and a renewal of covenant with our spouses. That's the biblical intent. It's why it's unique. When the Bible says that sexual sin is different than other kinds of sins, I think it's because sex is the only thing that is inherently covenantal that we can do with our bodies. So in in the Christian tradition, it's a big deal. It's the initiation and the renewal of covenant. 
And then you see an analogy in the Bible. It says like Christ in the church. Right, we have a covenant. There's a deeply theological nature to what we do with sex in our lives. So the biblical mark is clear. It is faithful, loving, joyful monogamy in marriage. Joyful? Is that a mark? Read Song of Solomon, right? It's supposed to be faithful, loving, joyful monogamy in marriage. Now here's my question. Is that mark our goal? Is that mark our goal? Once again, I'm not talking about we have weakness in our life on this side of heaven where we're going to fail to miss or fail to hit the mark at times. We repent. God forgives. We learn. We grow. I'm talking about have we reached a point in our life where we've shrugged our shoulders and said, you know what? I know this is the goal and I just don't care. Just don't care if I miss this mark. And let's make it a little closer to home. I think it applies to pornography. We are called to purity in the Bible. We're called to purity. We're called to honor. You can't do that with pornography. I know this. You all know this. I've talked about this before. I don't speak to you from a pedestal on this. I know what it does. Okay, but as if you are struggling with that, and you say, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. Are you, though? Are you struggling? Because that's a good sign if you're struggling. Like, God's convicting you. Like, friend, this is sin. you got to get out of this. And then by struggle, I mean you're praying. You're going into accountability. You're reaching out to friends. I mean, you're fighting. You are going to go home with your shield at the end of this fight. So I'm not, not talking about addressing it that way. I'm talking about, have you reached a point where you just shrugged your shoulders and said, I don't care. I just don't care. This matters more to me than what God said. And so I'm going to miss the mark. And friends, you can't miss that mark without hurting people around you. You can't. You're making a choice to pull back that arrow and let it go and hurt someone. That's just the reality. It's the ripple effect of that kind of sin. And if that's what you have settled for, uh, that is wrath of God territory. My last category has to do with attitudes. And I, I don't have a mark here because I'm, I'm referencing a couple th- different things. So Jesus died for us as an act of forgiveness. As we are given the forgiveness of Christ in our lives, as we surrender our lives to him, what Christ gives to us is the ability to pass on that kind of forgiveness. So my question for you this morning is, um, have you given up on forgiving someone? Have you settled for resentment and bitterness? Either for one person or as a pattern in your life where, no, I know the Bible calls me to forgive and I just don't care. I'm going to nurse this. We're called to honor each other. You You know, honor, we might think of it in really big terms, but honor can be how you look at someone. Uh, if, if we look at someone and our eyes go up and down their body, that's, that's not honor. That's not honoring someone with our eyes. Maybe deep inside we're feeling judgment and contempt that we need to deal with. Oh man, do our eyes convey this? They're the windows to our soul, right? We can honor with people with how we sit. You can communicate a lot by your posture. Don't look at the person next to you right now. You know, I could sit like this, or uh, I could sit like this, or I can sit like this. You could pour out your soul to me, and I could sit all kinds of ways that will communicate things. 
Um, I, I can honor, well, man, there's so many ways to go with this, but this is really my question. Is there something in your life where you know you're not honoring someone close to you? You know you're not. Um, I, I know my wife and I talk about, and I use a marriage relationship a lot, but you could think of this as a friendship or with kids or anything, but you know what? There are things I can do that I know don't honor my wife. I, I cannot do things I've promised I'd do. I can avoid, um, my wife is honored if I talk with her about my day. I can just decide not to talk with her about my day. Um, I can decide to be snarky. I can, I mean, there's all kinds of ways. And if I see it and I know it, it's one thing to see it and know it and repent. Ask her forgiveness. Pray for God to work in me to help make me the man I need to be, not the man I am. Right? That's, it's all just part of life. But it's another thing if I go, you know what? That dishonors my wife and I just don't care. Even though God has given me her to steward, just as he has given me to her to steward, I can shrug my shoulders and say, I don't care. Envy. I added that one to the list because I almost never talk about envy. Envy is the resentful dislike of someone else who has something that we desire. Do we envy other people's houses or vacations or cars or even spouses, God forbid, or jobs or their friendship or their popularity or their life in general? And we're angry at them and we're a little bitter against them and it just doesn't seem fair rather than settling into whatsoever God has given us, be content, be content. You can find contentment in your situation. All right, I say all this, and you can come talk with me in Message Plus about uh, if, if I'm going to hit the sweet spot here on God's wrath and grace, because I, a lot of the grace discussion is going to come next week. We're going to read next week, my friends, we are not those who give up hope and are lost. We're of the company who live by faith and are saved. I mean, next week, we're going to hit the ground running on the response to this. But but we can't appreciate what's coming without appreciating what the reality of sin and how God views it and the importance of making sure that as surrendered followers of Christ, we are not settling into these deliberate patterns where we are at some point going, I don't care. I don't care, God. Um, that's not letting God be Lord of our lives. That's not letting God be king of our lives. We like the idea of I am a friend of God. But are, are we servants of God? Are we subjects of God? That's imagery in the Bible too. And you don't look at a king and go, I just don't care. You just don't look at a king and shrug your shoulders. You look at a king and you say, uh, got it. <laughs> yes, sir. Working on this. All right, so next week, we're, we're going to celebrate the hope of God's grace. The hope of God's presence in our life. That God is a God who does not want us settling into these places. He's a God who pursues us and a God who casts this vision of the glorious kingdom that he's drawn us into. 
Uh, and I, I'm nervous about letting a sermon like this settle in for a week. I'll be honest, I'm nervous about it. But I think if the writer of Hebrews is going to land on that for a while and go, listen, and he's writing to people in the church, he says, I've got to talk to you about the wrath of God. I've got to warn you that this God who loves you is also a God who takes sin seriously. And if you're going to commit yourself to following Christ, you have to understand that lordship means patterns. Lordship means habits. Lordship means we don't settle for shrugging our shoulders and going, I don't care, or this is just who I am. No, God promises to do a work in you. God promises that when you give your life to him, he starts a transformative work. He's going to continue that transformative work. And that's the promise. He's not going to call you to something he doesn't equip you for. And he has called you to hit the mark. He will equip you to become more and more accurate, not by our own willpower and screwing our eyes shut tight, not not that. It's the promise of his word, of his spirit, of the strength of his people, all working together to move us out of this territory. So so this is my challenge this morning. There's no classes besides Message Plus this morning, so it's okay if it's after 11 o'clock. Listen, if you're recognizing as I'm talking that there is something in your life that is a pattern that you've settled for, that you have, maybe without thinking it consciously, but you've said, I just don't care what I know the mark is, uh, spiritually speaking, I, ju- I just don't care. Um, friends, you've got to take this warning seriously. This is a biblical warning. This isn't Anthony's warning to you. I'm just reading to you from God's word. It, it, you must repent. And that repentance is going to mean before God. It might mean before others. If there's people that you know you have hurt. But it probably also means accountability. Acknowledging this to someone. If you want to do it individually. One on one after the service. Awesome. There's always people up here to pray with you. We'll do it. You can find someone else in the audience. Doesn't have to be us. You can come to Message Plus and tell the whole room if you'd like. That's a great way to do it by the way. Message Plus. Our room is getting pretty good at holding each other accountable week to week. That's a good place to start. So I'm going to let this settle in for a week. I want this to be a week where we pursue repentance. And then next Sunday, really see the power and the unbelievable gift of grace that God offers to us through Christ to do a work in our life to move us out of that darkness and into the light. Lord, uh, I'm not even sure what to pray. Um, these topics are hard for me because in some ways I just don't like to think about your wrath. I just want to think about your love. But I have to remember I appreciate your love as I understand um, what it costs you to love me, what your love saves me from, Yeah, I I don't like this this territory of seeing the areas of my life that still need to be more fully surrendered to you. I don't like to look at it honestly. 
Uh, I don't like the idea that, oh, there, there are things in my life. Um, there's sin in my life. And you're a God who cannot abide sin. Uh, man, that makes me uncomfortable. But I have to address it, Lord, and I have to see it. I want to know how to surrender it to you. And to experience what it's like to come out from the grip of those things and into the light and the freedom to which you call us. We want your kingdom, Lord. We want to experience this life that you offer us. Give us the boldness, Lord, with the help of your spirit to see the areas in our life that we need to more fully surrender to you. Like the psalmist said, help me to see if there be any wicked way in me. Why? To lead me into this life everlasting that you've promised. Uh, So Lord, um, move our hearts with the gift of repentance. Give us the gift of guilt if we need it, but godly guilt not that moves us into a place of shame, but moves us into the process for which you heal and forgive and restore, not just us, but those around us. May this happen for our good and for your glory. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.